0: This is the Commonwealth City Church podcast. Thanks for listening. Commonwealth is a church in Lexington, Kentucky. For more info, visit our website at CommonwealthCityChurch.com and follow us on Instagram at ComCityChurch. We hope you enjoy the message. We're in John 17. John 17, we've been in the book of John, I think all of this year and all of last year. And we find ourselves in John 17. This is Jesus' prayer the night before he went to the cross. So he's, um, in, he's at the Last Supper, he's with the disciples, and he's praying out loud in front of them. Um, so this is what Jesus had in mind uh, the day before he went to the cross to pray for the people that he loved. Um, if you don't mind standing for the reading of the scripture, that would be incredible. We're John 17 verses 18 through 21. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, so that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You can be seated. Yeah. So, Father, we just thank you so much uh, for the scripture, and I just echo the prayers of what's been prayed before. Prayed before. God, we ask that, um, that you be present, that you'd speak uh, through this message tonight and through the rest of the service. Jesus, that you'd be honored and glorified. And, um, and Holy Spirit, we ask that as rain comes and fills dry ground and as water is given to thirsty land, that you'd be poured out on us here tonight, that you'd meet our needs that you would uh, meet us in the place that, that we most need it. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus begins, and there's kind of two different prayers, one that he's closing for the disciples and the one that he's opening up for a new group of people that he will be, be praying for. But to understand, I think, the meaning or the, what, how we can best interpret this passage, I think we first have to understand what Jesus means by the word world. So Jesus says, as I've been sent into the world, so I'm sending them, talking about the 12 disciples that he's surrounded by, I'm sending them into the world. And world is this word that could have many different meanings or kind of connotations. You know, you could say like, hey, I'm going to Las Vegas to take part in worldly things. Or you could be like, yeah, I'm going to go to the gorge and explore the world and all of its grandeur and uh, beauty. And uh, I think Jesus you know, we could get caught up in maybe some misinterpretations of what Jesus means when he says, I'm, so I've been sent into the world, so I'm sending them into the world. Um, so in order to understand what the world is and what we are being sent into and what the disciples were sent into, I'm going to rely on N.T. Wright, a scholar from Scotland, New Testament scholar. N.T. Wright said, the world, remember, in this gospel, doesn't mean simply the physical universe as we know it. It means the world insofar as it has rebelled against God, has chosen darkness rather than light, and has organized itself to oppose the creator. So the world is kind of this catch-all for uh, that which opposes Jesus and his message, which opposes his life, his ministry, the coming kingdom, what he's brought to establish on earth. And you see this is really multifaceted. It's in many different spheres that we see people opposing Jesus throughout his ministry. You know, in one sense, the religious establishment of the day opposes him in in truth, right? Jesus brings this truth about himself, truth about the way that life should be lived and who God is, and we see him battling and duking it out with the Pharisees. So he comes against a religious establishment that opposes his message and his kingdom. We also see it in the physical world, uh, sickness. Uh, We see Jesus coming against uh, opposition to his message and to his life, in the physical when when he heals people. We also see it in the spiritual. The spiritual world has an opposition to him. He comes up against the kingdom of hell, the kingdom of Satan, in like casting demons out and that sort of thing. And so when he's saying, as I've sent them into the world, these, or as I've been sent into the world, a world that opposes me, a world that doesn't know of my truth, a world that is full of darkness, these are the types of things that I believe uh, should come to mind. And he's saying, I'm sending the disciples into that same kind of world. And, uh, you know, I'm thankful that we don't live in a world that opposes Jesus today, you know, like this. Oh, wait. <laughs> we do live in this kind of existence. Um, there's a philosopher and cultural uh, critic named Charles Taylor, who's a Christian out of Canada. He is what he's called the, the Nova effect. This is one of his theories. Um, A supernova, if you're familiar with the term, is when a star collapses in on itself and then explodes into thousands of different lights. It's a star that just bursts into many, many lights. And he uses this word, the nova effect, like a supernova, to describe the type of society that we live in today, that what once was all held together in the belief that Jesus is God and was from God in Christendom. You know, for a millennium, Western society was built around the idea that Jesus is God. This was Christendom. This was the society that we've grown out of. Um, that our culture once held this belief that was central to everything, all of our institutions, all of our society, all of our practices as people, was centered around this core belief that Jesus is God. But as that belief has, has worn off, it's been like this explosion into hundreds of different competing worldviews that we just find ourselves mixed in and around, day in and day out. You know, things like uh, things that compete for our, for, for our vision of the good life, um, worldview that compete for our love and for our allegiance and for our attention. Um, how many things are we bombarded with every day, whether it's media or, or friends or, or messaging, that pull us and tug us in one way or another. And, you know, it's not that these worldview or beliefs um, necessarily are, are just opposed to God, but they're opposed to each other. We live in a world of division that can't decide. We live in a society that can't really decide what its core truth is. And so we see these ideologies just duking it out. And the ways that they duke it out don't really look like Jesus. It looks like power struggle, uh, manipulation, attempts to control, to subdue other groups or ideologies. You know, what we, we see it in other religious systems. We see it in definitely our political system right now. Just like the language and the vitriol and the anger and, and, and that sort of thing. It's hard not to get caught up in that kind of worldview or cultural or societal struggle or battle. And we live just as Jesus sent his disciples into a world that was opposed to the message of Jesus. So we exist in this kind of battle of competing worldview and ideologies that doesn't really know the love, the truth, or the lifestyle of Jesus. So we look into verse 19 after he says, was, I'm going to send them into the world, or I have sent them into the world, he says, I don't ask, oh, sorry. He says, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they may be also sanctified in truth. And this word consecrate is, uh, in the Greek, it's agiatso. He's saying, for their sake I consecrate myself. I I'm, I'm sanctify myself. I set myself apart. This is kind of a, a holiness. Jesus is, is saying like, they're going into the world, so I am making it possible that they don't look like the world, so that they don't live like the world. It's all this, this same word that shows up twice in this verse. Consecrate and sanctified is from the same Greek word, and it also means to be set apart, to be made holy. And of course, Jesus says this the day before he goes to the cross with, I'm guessing, the cross in mind. The ultimate sign of consecration. The ultimate sign of who Jesus is and the way that life should be lived. In just 24 hours, the disciples will see Jesus uh, hang from the cross and forgive, out of selfless love, the people who hung him there. And so he's sending the disciples into the world as he went, set apart as he was set apart. And uh, there's this core sort of spiritual truth that exists in this passage. And it's this. It's that our actions spring from our belief. The disciples are going to be sanctified in the truth that Jesus is God and that he is from God. And this truth is going to cause the disciples to live a different lifestyle than that of the world. Where the, relig- where the different world, worldly ideologies and philosophies and powers that be fight and anger, control and manipulation, the disciples are going to go in and somewhat subversively out of the truth that they've gathered around, that Jesus is from God, it's going to cause them to live in a way that looks different. In a world of anger, they're going to, they're going to uh, exemplify a lifestyle of love. In a world of control, they're going to exemplify a lifestyle of service. And this all flows from their belief of who Jesus is. And as this river flows from the well of their belief, a dry and broken, brittle, and angry world will be restored, be brought to new life, It would be be brought into restoration. You've maybe heard it said that uh, Christianity is only one generation away from extinction. This is a phrase that I hear get tossed around every once in a while. And the truth in that phrase is this, is that if we were not to disciple our children, or if we were not to share the gospel, or if we were not to live lives of selfless love that revealed the identity of Jesus to a disbelieving world, then in 50 years... Christianity would be extinct. And I think that Jesus had that sort of concept in mind when he was praying to the Father, because the nature of his relationship with the disciples is about to radically change. Jesus is about to leave in the physical sense of how he was with them, and then it's up to them. And it's almost like he's asking the Father, Father, as I go, I need them to carry on my ministry as I carried it. I need them to love as I've show love. I need them to irrigate a dry world as I've irrigated it. Because if the disciples don't get the importance of their task in being set apart and consecrated, sanctified in the truth of Jesus Christ, then his ministry and his death would have been for nothing. Now, of course, we know that doesn't happen, and within 200 years, the disciples will have carried that message and the power of the Holy Spirit in, in such a mighty way that Uh, Christianity will be the largest religion, widely practiced religion in the Western world. But I think that is the core of truth, that in these two parallel statements that Jesus is praying for the disciples, they would go in the world as he was in the world. They'd be set apart as he was set apart. There's a passing of the baton, the blessing of the Father for them to live out the ministry that he carried in the exact same way that he carried it. And it's a baton that we carry ourselves today. So Jesus wraps up his prayer for the 12 disciples in those last two phrases. they be sent to the world and that they be set apart. And then he changes his focus. He turns, he makes a turn and begins praying for a new group of people. Verse 20 says, I do not ask only for these, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Also for those who believe in me through their word. Jesus is talking about us. I love what Kurt, Kurt and I met this week to talk about the passage. And Kurt, in his you know typical Kurt way, uh, put it better than I could have ever phrased it. He said, "This is the point in the Bible. This is the point where you and I become Bible characters. You know, when we step into the Bible, we know that Jesus was praying specifically for us. We're the ones who have believed in the disciples' message, in the word that they shared with the world about Jesus. So it is." I think it's important for us to really kind of take this to heart because as Jesus changes his focus, changes his trajectory of his prayer, what was it that was so important to God for our lives that he was praying specifically for us, having us in mind, the day before he we went to the cross? That the prayers that he offered to the Father for you and for me were so important that in his last day of living that he offered them to God. You and I become Bible characters right in this moment. Verse 21 shows us exactly what it is that Jesus had on his heart and on his mind for each of us the day before he died. He said, I pray for those that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us. He prays for two things specifically for us, both of them around unity, that we would be one with him as he is with the Father, unified with God in intimacy and one with with one another. Unity, unity is at the heart of what God desires for you and for I for you and for me. So much so that this is what he prayed the day before he went to the cross. But why is unity so important? I think this is a very very underemphasized piece of theology for the church today that we would have to think about. But I, I do, I, it, it makes me pause and think and wonder why this seems like such an odd prayer for Jesus to pray in this moment and at this time. And I think to answer this question, we have to look at the nature of who God is. That God in this mystery of the Trinity is kind of, he's three in one. God in and of himself is perfect union. In relationship, This grand mystery of, of how somehow the selfless love and the life-giving of the Father to the Son, the Son to the Father, the Father to the Holy Spirit, and all around. That this is at the very center of life, and the very center of the life that God wants each of us to live. Not just with each other, but, but with Him. Jesus is sending us into the world just as He sent the disciples to live out His set-apart life. And this is only possible through unity. We know that in the book of John, Jesus says, I only do the things that I heard, saw the Father do, and only hear, say the things that I heard the Father say. And so somehow Jesus had such an intimate relationship with the Father that he was, he was one with the Father even on earth, that he was, every, all of his ministry was an overflow of intimacy with God. And he's saying, I want that for all of the people who follow the message that the disciples give, and I want them to be radically unified with one another in that same way. That is really a powerful message for us tonight, that somehow the selfless love and others-focused nature of Jesus we are supposed to live in with, with, within our community, with ourselves. And I think that this truly stands out in a world of anger, division, control, manipulation, self-advancement, the, the, the putting down of other people, that if we are to move towards one another, it has to be in selflessness. It has to be in the spirit of the cross. It has to be in repentance, forgiveness, and selfless love. An angry and divided world, they move apart, they move away. We see that all the time in, in our society people who are isolating each other, who shun each other, who uh, leave those who are offended. But Jesus has a different way, and it's unity selfless love. It's coming together. I think one of the most obvious ways that we see the division in the world right now is what um, has what, kind of been popularized in pop culture under what people are calling cancel culture. I don't know if you've heard this term thrown around, but people will just say, yeah, we live in a, a cancel culture. Canceling somebody is something that happens when they offend us. A lot of times we think about it as like a celebrity who makes an off colored joke or comment. And then they'll just lose a million YouTube followers within the next day. Entire groups of people will say, okay, we're just going to cancel this person who's offended us. And so this has happened to, like, influencers. Well, they'll just lose hundreds of thousands of followers overnight. The money will be taken practically from their pocketbooks. They'll be shunned and cast off and uh, considered obsolete, canceled. One of the problems with this is that it started to seep into day-to-day relationships. That it hasn't just stayed um, as a celebrity to an audience, but now it's kind of a person-to-person phenomena. That it's popular to just cancel people who offend you. I was reading a New York Times article on cancel culture, and they told a story of a girl who's in high school who was offended at a song that a friend was playing on on his phone. They said that she canceled this other student for offending her. The article said that this meant that she would avoid speaking or engaging with this student in the future. She didn't care what he had to say because he wouldn't change his mind, and in her opinion was beyond reason. Canceling those who offend us is a way to erase them, to shun them, and to pretend like they don't exist. But we know that this is opposed to the life that we have in Jesus. It's almost impossible to live a canceled type life or culture for a Christian, especially in light of, what we, of the sacrifice that we see Jesus give on the cross in just 24 hours from this passage. It's really hard to say that Jesus is our model for life. Jesus is the truth that we're set apart in and to watch or read or consider our, our, our God to be a God who uh, came to a world who hated him. Who looked at the people who hung him on the cross and offered forgiveness? No, no, no. The Christian must live a life of repentance, forgiveness, and selfless love. But we know that the world doesn't recognize this is good. The world, this is almost this kind of enemy love or forgiveness that brings us together in unity. It's almost offensive to a world that doesn't know the truth about God. Maybe you remember the story of Brant Jean from this last summer. Um, This really stood out to me over the summer. Brant is an African-American man who took the witness chair at his brother's, at the trial for his brother's murder. Uh, Brant's brother, who's obviously also African-American, was killed by a white woman police officer. Brant gave a testimony that was considered controversial And offensive to some he sat from the witness chair and looked at his brother's murderer and said these words I'm not going to say that I hope you die and rot Brant said I love you just like anyone else I forgive you and if I know and I know that if you go to God and ask him he will forgive you too this decision was labeled controversial because a black man chose to forgive a white woman Brant was attacked from all sides of the aisle for letting his, his, uh, his brothers attacker off the hook and for not relishing in the justice that could have been brought to her. Now, I don't claim to know all the ins and outs of race relations in America. And I definitely don't claim to know what it would be like to be an African-American man uh, in, in America today, let alone one who had his brother taken by a white police officer. But I do know this. I know that true repentance, true enemy love, it's messy. It's countercultural. It's, it's not recognizable to the world that is opposed to Jesus Christ. So that brings us to the final phrase in this passage. Jesus comes to the point of unity. And I think it seems odd to us what unity, why Jesus would pray for unity, but I think in this last phrase, we get a great picture of why Jesus cares about unity. He cares about unity with with God for us. He cares about unity between one another. And in this last phrase, so that, when I was reading this scripture, the so that were like the words that just flew off the page at me. They, They popped me in the face. This is the point of our unity. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The result of our unity is mission. An unbelieving world that is opposed to God will see the unity of the church and selfless love and the identity and the truth about Jesus will be revealed so that the world may believe that you have sent me, so that the world may know that I've been sent from God, so the world may know that I am God, so that the world may know that I love it. Our actions spring from the well of belief if we're unified around the truth that Jesus is God and that he's from God, then our selfless love will be like a river that flows and irrigates a disbelieving world. If we're unified, if we represent the selfless love of Jesus well, then people will taste of the water and it'll be like sweet, it'll be pure, it'll be refreshing, and they'll want to follow it back up to the source of our truth. But if we represent the division of the world, if we represent the hatred that the world already knows, if we represent the selfishness that the world is already accustomed to, then they'll taste our water and it'll be bitter and they won't want to follow it back upstream. Gandhi said this, maybe you've heard this before, he said, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. The Barna Group 10 years ago did a study to ask Uh, non-Christians in America, what their perception of people within the church were, three words stood out above all the other descriptors from non-believers, how they described believers. Three words were this, hypocritical, judgmental, anti-homosexual. If we produce bitter waters, then the world will not want to follow it back upstream. And the true identity of Jesus Will be hidden. We know that unity and that love have a missional focus. Already in John, even before this passage, in John 13, 34 through 35, Jesus said, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this you will the world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Mission and unity, they go hand in hand. It's a bit of a mystery, but it's a truth that we see throughout scripture, and it's a truth that we see throughout church history, that when the Spirit comes, the Spirit unifies. He brings repentance, forgiveness, selfless love, unity, and a missions movement is launched. And so just to, uh, to close tonight, I want to share three examples from church history that showcase that mission and unity go hand in hand. The first we're going to look at is straight from scripture, it's Acts 4. In this passage, we see that uh, Peter and John have just faced intense persecution from the religious leaders in the early church. So they go back to the Christians and we find the Christians gather around them and pray the same prayer. All of them facing persecution pray together in unity. And in Acts 4.31, it says this. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, when the full number of those who believed were of one heart and of one soul, and no one said any of the things that belonged to him was was his own, but they had everything in common. They prayed to pray together. The Spirit came. They were unified, and then they spoke boldly. They were of one heart and of one mind. And a missions movement was launched. Unity and missions go hands goes go hand in hand. The second example is from Heron Hut. Uh, it's, a German, ger- it's a farm in Germany in the German countryside, the east end of the country. In the 1700s, religious refugees started coming from all over around Europe to come and, and have refuge on that farm. My uh, missions, I have a missions book that uh, picks up the story uh, right around the time that the religious refugees began to arrive. It says the religious refugees Uh, continued to arrive in Heronhut, and soon the estate turned into a thriving community dotted with newly constructed houses and shops. But with the increasing numbers came problems. The diverse religious backgrounds of the residents created discord, and on more than one occasion, the very existence of Heronhut was in jeopardy. Then in 1727, five years after the first refugees arrived, the whole atmosphere changed a period of spiritual renewal was climaxed at a communion service on August 13th with a great revival, which according to participants marked the coming of the Holy Spirit to Hut. Whatever may have occurred in the spiritual realm, there's no doubt that that great night of revival brought a new passion for missions, which became the chief characteristic of the Moravian movement. No longer were minor, minor doctrinal differences a source of contention. Instead, there was a strong spirit of unity a heightened dependence on God, a prayer vigil had begun that continued around the clock seven days a week without interruption for more than a hundred years. When the spirit fell, it it fell in unity, brought people together in repentance and forgiveness. It launched a hundred years of group prayer and also, out of that, unity was birthed the largest Protestant missions up to that point. They sent out more missionaries in that hundred years out of that tiny farm in the end of East Germany than in the history of Protestantism combined up to that point. They were unified. Prayer was launched, and a missions movement was birthed. Prayer, unity, and missions go hand in hand. The third example comes from home. Home comes from central Kentucky. This February marks the 50-year anniversary of the Asbury Revival. Fifty years ago, 1970, early February, there was a student who stood up in chapel who was a senior and began confessing to the rest of the student body the sins that they had been committing throughout their time at the school. Confessed that they hadn't followed God with everything, that they had kept God at arm's distance. Without invitation, other students just started streaming forward. Nobody asked, nobody invited, they just started going. Soon the altar was filled with students who were weeping and confessing to one another. The people who were there that day in early February 1970 said the Holy Spirit fell in a manifest presence. It was like a blanket of God had descended on that group. For 10 days, there was 24-7 prayer, worship, confession, repentance, and forgiveness in that chapel. People didn't leave for 10 days straight. They canceled classes and began sending students all across the country to share what was going on. Students went as far as Los Angeles and Dallas, all across the Midwest and the Southeast. They said there were two weeks of of tent meetings that spontaneously erupted in Dallas as a result of the testimonies that were being shared. People across the country started to come to faith because of what had happened that morning at that chapel. A lot of us, if we've grown up in this area, would know people that came to faith through the Asbury Revival. I know a 30, 40 year campus pastors here at this university that uh, students came and shared with them and that's how they first entered into relationship with God. Unity and missions, they go hand in hand. So that the world may know who Jesus is. This is the outworking of our unity. So I'll leave us with this question to close. If people were to taste of your spiritual water, what would they taste? I know if, if we're a divided group, if we're a group that gossips, if we're a group that sits uh, week in and week out with contempt for one another, if we're a group that, uh, that is okay just shunning the people who offend us in our community, if we're critical of each other, if we're critical of our pastors, if we don't exemplify selfless love, then the waters that flow out of this place will be bitter waters. And the eyes of our community, of the people who need to know Jesus, will continue to be veiled. But if we're a group who is unified in repentance, forgiveness, the selfless love of Jesus, if we're a group who can give to each other and selfless love. Give of our time, of our money, of our energy, our efforts, our resources for people who can band together and model the life of Jesus, the unity of Jesus, who can house the spirit of Jesus. Then the water that flows out of this place will be pure. It will be sweet. It will be refreshing to a world opposed to God. A world that's bitter, that's broken, that's dry, that needs streams of living water. If we come together around the truth of Jesus Christ and are unified in our love for one another and our love for God, then the truth that Jesus is God, that he's from God, will be revealed to a dying and broken world.